This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics, billions of dollars of spending, and political intrigue. On today's episode, the story about Chinese government influence in Canada just keeps getting thornier. And the federal budget is here. How are the Liberals keeping up with their promises to plant, like, two billion trees and make your groceries more affordable? Let's find out. Joining me this week, he's got his reading glasses out for this year's budget. It's Politico's Nick Taylor-Vassi. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me again. Doing double duty with back-to-back appearances on the backbench, we have Murad Hamadi, business reporter from The Logic. I'm also wearing my glasses. Very important. And last but not least, a third Ottawan, the hub Stuart Thompson. What can I say? There's a lot going on in Ottawa this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's get into it. When did the Prime Minister become aware of these allegations? When? One question. We have asked one question 18 times. This question, if not answered, threatens the core of our Canadian democracy. For the 20th time today. For the 23rd time. Let me be clear. Bring back the two Michaels, Michael Kovrick and Michael Spaver, was the utmost priority of this government. This is why we don't play uh, with national security uh, using partisan theatre. So by now you've probably heard about the recent round of allegations of election interference and meddling by the Chinese government in Canadian democracy. A new scoop or piece of the puzzle seems to be dropping every week, and it is absolutely dominating the conversation in Ottawa. It's getting kind of ugly. And although Prime Minister Trudeau has appointed a nonpartisan special rapporteur to look into it, calls for a public inquiry continue to sound. So let me give you a brief rundown of the latest. A few weeks ago, Global News' Sam Cooper published a piece stating that Member of Parliament Han Dong of Don Valley North riding in Toronto area was alleged to be the preferred candidate in his nomination race by Beijing and that he was, quote, a witting affiliate of Chinese influence. Months earlier, it had been reported that 11 members of parliament were either witting or unwitting accomplices in Beijing's interference in the 2019 federal election. In Cooper's piece, Dong was said to have had a meeting with a senior Chinese diplomat in February of 2021 and allegedly told him to hold off on freeing the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who were being held in China at the time. Dong stepped down from the Liberal caucus last week and is now acting as an independent. I have informed the prime minister and the leadership of the Liberal Party caucus 
that I will be sitting as an independent to my wife, Sophie, and my kids. I love you. I thank you for all the support and love you give me. The truth will protect us. Our honor and our family will get through this together. Sorry about that. Thank you, Speaker. He emphatically denies the allegations against him, saying that while he did meet with China's consul general, he denies advising Beijing to delay the release of the two Canadians. Dong has since sued Global News over the story they published. It should be noted that the Globe and Mail said that the Prime Minister's office had examined a transcript of Dong's conversation and concluded that there was no actionable evidence. So this is all pretty messy. If the allegations against Dong are true, then Beijing has been interfering in our democracy at the highest level. But if they're not true, high-level agents of the Canadian security apparatus may be subverting the prime minister by illegally leaking information and ruining a democratically elected candidate's reputation. Both scenarios, highly troubling. While there's been a lot of stress put on the fact that this shouldn't be a partisan issue, it's extremely clear that politicians can't help but make it into one. So on this week's episode, we want to dig into that. How is this complex issue being seized on by the various parties, and what does that say about the state of our government right now? I want to first open by talking about the Conservatives. So the Conservatives have been fairly aggressively accusing the Liberals of knowing about these allegations and simply failing to take action. Stuart, what do you make of this? What does it say maybe about how they're hoping to leverage it to bolster their own political fortunes? Yeah, I think there's two things going on here. One is that my reading of this from watching it and also from talking to people in the Conservative Party is that they are extremely skittish about this story. And they have this dual idea that this is obviously good because the government looks bad here, no matter how you slice it. But during the last election, went a little harder on Beijing in their platform than they ever had before. I think they are very scared of coming off looking bigoted in this story. And I think they know they won't be done any favors by the liberals, by the NDP and by the media if they step over that line. They don't know where the line is. So I think they're about three steps behind it right now. You'll notice that Polyev always says Beijing and they try to emphasize that it's the Chinese government. The second thing that's going on here is I don't think they feel like these allegations are a slam dunk. I think there is something there. But you should notice that Polyev never mentions Handong. And I think there's a little bit of caution on the allegations and on the rhetoric of going against China. Mm. So it's interesting you kind of mentioned like the conservatives perhaps being a little bit skittish because they don't want to perhaps hand ammunition either to the liberals, to the NDP, to just like the media at large or groups within the Chinese diaspora. They don't want to say anything that could come off as like particularly xenophobic. I think when you put this in conversation with like broader discussions that have been had about anti-Asian racism and unfairly accusing like people who have no affiliation with the Chinese state of like being somehow involved, I see why they might be skittish. But I don't think it's just the conservatives that have been, you know, kind of outspoken on this issue. Like we have heard a little bit of chatter from the NDP as well. I think because this is something that makes the current government look bad, there's a bit of a desire to leverage it. So how has the NDP responded to these allegations? The NDP line is, I don't want to say as always, but as often that thing, but in different form. So Jagmeet Singh has been emphasizing from the start, more or less, that he favors a public inquiry and the conservatives and the NDP have been trading off motions to try and basically call for one in the House. There's been all this sort of sideshow around whether the prime minister's chief of staff should testify at a parliamentary committee about what she and the PMO knew about the 
issue of interference and when they knew and how they knew and so on. The liberals filibustered that effort for quite a long time, you know, and then there was this one day when it was the week before the Biden visit when like it was possible, although very much not probable, that the government might fall, Donald Trump might get arrested, and there would be no government for Joe Biden to come and address. Uh, And he also (laughs) wouldn't be able to leave the country because of an insurrection. None of that played out, but there was a little bit of a guessing game with the NDP there. So the NDP has been trying to look strong on the issue in the sense of emphasizing that interference. And I would note again that, you know, Jagmeet Singh doesn't often reference China in these cases. He talks about foreign interference quite a lot in the infinitive, as do the liberals, the importance of dealing with the issue of foreign interference. But it has very much been, you know, the the proper forum for this is a public inquiry. The prime minister should call this public inquiry. Uh, We're not saying we don't believe in David Johnson, the, the rapporteur, but at the same time, public inquiry. Have you heard of the public inquiry? We think it's a great idea to have a public inquiry. Can we sell you a public inquiry? <laughs> the NDP is quite united on the kind of mantra that Murad was just referring to, where the conservatives are, it's a big enough caucus and kind of a rabid enough group that there's a, more of a spectrum. You know, there are a lot of tweets, and not that Twitter defines a person, but there are a lot of tweets about Handong from certain members of the caucus, for sure. Absolutely not from the top. And I think Stuart's point on the verbiage that comes from Pierre Polyev is extremely important here. But it is a bigger, rattier group who are really, you know, out to get the liberals. And I think uh, the NDP is a little bit more comfortable being not supportive of the liberals, but kind of just calling for things. It's really fun to call for a public inquiry because you can just keep calling for it. Where there are a lot of conservatives (laughs) who say this is our moment. As always, the conservative caucus room is a strange place to be and probably the place we all want to be in just for a few minutes to see what it's like, because it's like not easy. (laughs) Yeah, I almost wonder, too, because I think there's maybe a couple of reasons why the top conservatives are not being as aggressive as maybe some backbenchers. One thing that I wonder about a little is the number of these like 11 MPs allegedly that received help in a way that could be termed interference in the 2019 election, it was sort of alluded to that it wasn't necessarily just liberal MPs, right? That there were also certain perhaps conservative MPs that might have benefited. So like, I kind of wonder whether that perhaps also provides a reason for specifically the top conservatives to be like a little bit less aggressive than they might be otherwise. I'd be surprised if one of those candidates was a conservative, but it's not out of the realm possibility for sure. Because if you're a hostile government, getting someone in there is getting someone in there. And that's all that really matters. Um, But I do think there is something to this controversy, which is that it could blow up anyway. Like, there's a lot of things we don't know. It's almost entirely controlled by the person or persons who is leaking from CSIS. One of the more interesting parts of that Sam Cooper story was the subsequent Globe story, which was based on the same material that they had chosen not to publish. So I think that's a really good insight into that we as viewers don't know a lot. And even the people in power and even the people in opposition don't know a lot. So I think if you're the liberals, part of the reason that they were so adamant that Telford wouldn't testify until they decided it wasn't worth losing the government over is that they just don't know. There's a lot of stuff they know they don't know. And that's a really bad place to be in for a government. One question that I do have amidst all this is it feels as though a lot of the weight of our general concern about foreign interference is falling on the head essentially of 
one MP who was named as one of a group that potentially had benefited from foreign interference on the part of one state. But this isn't the only story of foreign interference that's happening in Canada. You know, like when Jagmeet Singh speaks about foreign interference, he doesn't really specifically mention China, kind of leaving the door open to interpret that that might be about foreign interference on the part of, you know, India comes to mind. People are concerned about Russia some of the time. Like there are a number of countries that I think we we can talk about when it comes to foreign interference. Are we losing sight? of a broader conversation that needs to be happening about foreign government interference by focusing on this specific case? Like, are we missing the forest for the trees here? Uh, No. I think uh, you have to keep focus on the fact that, first of all, China is like first team all pro. They are the best at this. And that, I think, is really important, that China's a big, powerful, rich country that's doing this. And secondly, we have something approaching 2 million Chinese Canadians in our country. So, What that allows is, you know, we have a very normal world of diaspora politics in Canada that provides a very attractive target for states to get in there. Because as we have learned from covering this story, if we don't speak the language, it's very hard to know. As journalists, it's very hard for these intelligence services to get into it. So I I think that it's fair to sort of look around and see what's going on and give a fair appraisal to other countries. But I don't think we should lose sight on the fact that China's the big player here. And I think the magnitude of these stories is just about representative of that. So I'm going to partly disagree with Stuart there. And I, I don't want to turn this into water boundary, but the point he makes is is a good one. And, you know, we've had people from those diaspora communities making the point that particularly the Chinese Canadian or Canadians from Hong Kong or just other Asian Canadian groups making the point that they've been raising this issue for quite a long time. And it's nice that everybody in Ottawa has finally woken up to it because ultimately, and it's worth actually saying explicitly, people from those diaspora communities are often either the subject or the target of those interference attempts. Either it's hostile to them or it's attempting to co-opt them. Uh, In either case, they are stuck in the middle by both sides. Where I'm going to disagree in part is certainly members of the the Chinese Canadian community have been saying that for years. So have members of the Indian Canadian community. So have members of the Iranian Canadian community. So have members of the Ukrainian Canadian community when it comes to Russia. I agree with you with the apparatus that we are aware that we're dealing with in the instance of the Chinese state is more significant than any we see elsewhere. But it is also the case that, you know, governments in the world of our allies are increasingly dividing the world into their friends they consider to be democracies and their opponents, counterparts who they consider to be authoritarian states. In the case of foreign interference, there is no benign foreign interference. So whether it's coming from democracies or authoritarian states, it's still affecting the people on the ground. episode is brought to you by Douglas. I've been traveling recently, roaming around Canada and the United States, and you know that feeling when you're sleeping in a bed that isn't yours and things just don't feel the same? It's been like 10 days since I've been away from home and my Douglas, and I truly do miss my mattress. Douglas is trusted by more than 150,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. But the real kicker is, the Douglas is made in Canada with Canadian values in mind. Quality, low cost, and a Rockies-inspired mountainscape design. You know Canadians, we're big on our nature. Douglas is so big on nature, in fact, that 90% of the energy used to make the Douglas comes from renewable sources like wind and hydro, and even their CoolSense moisture-wicking cover uses plant-derived fibers. 
Douglas is giving our listeners a free mattress protector plus half off a different accessory every week and also 15% off all other accessories. Visit douglas.ca slash Candleland to take advantage of these offers. That's douglas.ca slash Candleland. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I've been traveling for work recently and nothing is more draining than that. From weird sleep schedules to less nutritious meals to going outside less, it's been hard taking care of my health this past little while. And instead of trying a bunch of different supplements to get my life in order, AG1 from Athletic Greens gives me a much cheaper and easier alternative to getting it together. AG1 is a foundational nutritional drink packed with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients. And those 75 ingredients do a lot of work for me, from promoting my gut health, supporting immunity, to boosting energy, and so much more. Add one scoop of AG1 to 8 to 12 ounces of cold water, mix, and drink it up! If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com backbench. That's athleticgreens.com backbench. Check it out. Now it's time for Private Members Bills, the part of the show where we let our panelists set the agenda for once. Without further ado, I'd like to call on the Honourable Member from Ottawa Vanier to introduce a private member's bill. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. It is almost that time of year when the birds from South America and Central America fly north. Songbirds, warblers, all of our favorite feathered friends. They're going to be here in like a few weeks. And their timing arriving in the nation's capital coincides with kind of the worst part of the parliamentary calendar when the Easter break is over and MPs are together for like eight weeks in a row. And so they vote a lot, so many times. There are votes that are mostly posturing, and parties don't like to support each other. So this private member's motion, which I hope gains unanimous consent, would force everybody who is a critic of a minister across all the parties, before they can vote against each other, they have to go birding together, and they have to like <laughs> log a few sightings, and then they have to submit them to the speaker's office. And then once they do that, they can raise hell with each other all they want in the House of Commons. But I would wager that they'll find it a little harder to vote against each other after they've been out doing perhaps the most relaxing hobby that one, and I can speak from personal experience, can get used to doing every spring in this city. That's what I put to the House. That was such a disguised, why don't we all just get along motion. (laughs) I wanted to hear more about the birds. All right, moving on from birding, I would like to call on the Honorable Member from Kanata Carlton to introduce the private member's bill. So I think everyone probably knows about Danielle Smith's latest troubles in Alberta, which is that she was caught on tape talking to a pastor who had gotten in trouble with the COVID restrictions. One of the things she'd promised to do was to give some kind of amnesty on this when she was running for leader. She was then told she couldn't do that, and she said, oops, sorry, I won't do it then. This call was her saying, look, I'm doing everything I can to help you. Not ideal for a premier. You know, I saw her at the Canada Strong and Free Network doing a little fireside chat. And it was really interesting because that is the base. That is the conservative base there. And she talked basically nonstop about healthcare. She talked about her own story and then all of the successes she had on healthcare. And I was thinking that despite all these scandals and the root of this scandal is what brought her to power, which is a sort of rowdy populist anti-COVID section in Alberta that's still very much alive and influencing the UCP. But I think when we see this Alberta election, it's going to be a lot more boring than people expect, because I don't think the NDP wants to talk about this stuff. And I think that the UCP does not want to talk about Jason Kenney or anybody else 
or COVID. And I think we're going to be hearing a lot about checks to seniors and healthcare. So it may not be the fireworks we're hoping for as journalists, but maybe that's better for the province in general. Yeah, I want to be sad that the election's not going to be exciting. But at the same time, I feel like a boring election is usually good news for the people in the jurisdiction where it's happening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd like to hear uh, a private member's bill from the second member uh, from Ottawa, Vanier. We have a very complex uh, electoral system, multi-member. I would like to draw your attention via this private member's bill to the reboot that the United States has picked up of the 2016 election cost. You will no doubt be aware that former President Donald Trump considers the 2020 election to be the one that needs to be rebooted or at least rescripted. But what we're seeing now this week with his indictment and this pending case, you know, they're bringing back all of these great characters that we saw in the 2016 election. I'm thinking specifically of Michael Cohen. You know, he hasn't had much work since that show went off the air. And so he's really hoping to be cast in this reboot. The U.S. is going through a very partisan version of this debate of if a former leader of a country does crimes, allegedly, crimes of various types, and then uh, lots of people around you tell the world, you did some crime, uh, and maybe in some public statements, you maybe kind of admit to the crime, but it says they weren't crimes. Are you subject to the law? Or does being elected mean uh, no rules apply? Can anybody do crimes? Can a president do crimes? <laughs> when we cast our own series of our own reboot of political intrigue that involves envelopes of money, I would like to vote that we bring back Carl Heinz Schreiber because that would just be so much fun. The reboot that nobody was asking for, but now I will not be able to stop thinking about. Thank you for that private member's bill. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We are refocusing government spending while taking great care not to reduce the services and direct support that Canadians rely on. And today, she rolls out a bonanza of $43 billion of new inflation, debt, and taxes that will be on the backs of everyday, hard-working Canadians. I'm really proud that we were able to force this government to expand dental care. That's going to save money for families. That's going to mean that they're going to be able to take care of the teeth. All right. It's that time of the year again. Murad's favorite day happened last week. The Liberal government unveiled the 2023-2024 budget, which sits at a whopping $497 billion spread over the course of a few years. Finance Minister Christian Freeland says that the budget is a fiscally responsible plan, which increases taxes on the wealthiest while aiding lower and middle income Canadians. What sits as a centerpiece of this plan is a series of new green investment tax credits. These are intended to drive new clean electricity generation projects in an attempt to entice more investors and manufacturers to go green. You may remember U.S. President Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which offered massive incentives for investments in the green economy. 
The Liberal government is now attempting to follow suit by investing $1.2 billion this year and almost $21 billion over five years. Finance Minister Christian Freeland says clean energy and green technology spending may not have been the centerpiece of the 2023 federal budget if it weren't for the need to compete with infrastructure spending in the United States. No, I don't think we would have done as much had the IRA not been introduced. I mean, I think the reality is Canada, and in particular our government, has been at this for a long time. This proposal means that conservatives are going to be squeezed out on their pledge to kill Canada's carbon pricing scheme because this budget pledges to commit future governments to pay the difference or to backstop the future price of carbon or hydrogen, even if there are changes in government. Pierre Polyev was, unsurprisingly, not too happy with that. He rejected the notion that any government could actually force future governments to compensate energy companies while requiring everyone to keep paying higher carbon levies. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says that he'll support the budget as commitments to the party have been somewhat upheld with the budget's focus on affordability and the inclusion of dental and grocery benefits, while the Conservatives and the Bloc Québécois have said that they will vote against it. I mean, what's a budget without a little bit of controversy? Let's dig in. Nick, what stuck out to you as particularly important from this year's budget? The thing I keep trying to insert into conversations in Ottawa, because all we do is walk around and like try to you know, sound original about the federal budget is looking at the dental care program. And, uh, and I think it is this really interesting demonstration of kind of like real time confidence and supply budgeting. Um, when they kind of whipped the program together, it wasn't even a program yet. Really last year, they budgeted at $5.3 billion over five years. And now that price tag is now $13 billion, $7.3 billion more. And the explanation you get when you ask finance people is they just sort of did better math and they talked to more people and they came up with this new total. And I just find that really interesting because because in a $490 billion budget, $7 billion isn't that much. I mean, it's a lot of money, but it's not a rounding error. That's a reflection of how quickly it came together last year and how these kinds of confidence and supply deals uh, at least on the big items. It's like a reality check on how much they actually cost. I think that is the most interesting thing about this budget, which is that the Liberals signed this deal, and like I don't think we should mistake how much better this makes the Liberal government's life in the House of Commons, because in night and day, like a minority parliament is a nightmare. You can't do anything. All of your priorities get swamped. So they are getting a huge gain from this deal. But this dental plan, like Jagmeet Singh was beaming last week, like that is a huge win for an NDP party that usually doesn't get anything. And now the Liberals are scandalized on one side with the interference scandal. And, you know, there was a time when the Liberals talked about pharmacare. We don't really hear a lot about pharmacare anymore. They had a deficit that came in 10 billion over the forecast. So that shows you how squeezed they are there. Revenues are down by 5 billion opposed to what they expected. I think this just really shows you that this government is just kind of coasting along. They're not even doing the things they want to be doing while they have this deal with the NDP. Christian Freeland is is classifying this budget as like relatively fiscally responsible, I think specifically trying to compare it favorably to past budgets. Murad, what do you make of that characterization? Like, does this budget read as particularly fiscally responsible to you compared to, say, the last, I don't know, five years of liberal budgets? Well, if I remember correctly, last year's budget, uh, or it's certainly the FES projected a path to break even to eliminating the deficit. And this one doesn't. So that definitely has gotten the attention from a lot of what you would think of as more classical economic commenters, think tanks, 
people who have a strong focus on deficit and debt numbers, which are ultimately things we have to pay back. So worth focusing on. Yeah, I don't think anyone who is particularly worried about the deficit looked at this budget and thought, that's great. Like, nobody on that front is happy. All right. So I do want to dive into what we've been teasing, this idea of the investments in greening the economy, the response to the Inflation Reduction Act. So to frame it this way, how effective do we think the investments in greening the economy are going to be? This is not just like one line item in the budget. It's a through line and it's a a multi-year plan that's sort of being laid out. What parts of it do we think are going to be more effective, more promising versus are there any parts of it that seem like, okay, I don't really know what this is going to accomplish? To pick but one of many observations that I heard in the aftermath of the budget, there are tens and tens of billions of dollars in potential credits to be taken advantage of by companies uh, all over the country and in all kinds of green sectors to all kinds of green ends. But it is at this point only potential. These aren't $80 billion in in guaranteed spending that you can then match against the 300 and however many billion dollars that Biden's throwing at the same industry south of the border. Can I just agree with that? Because it really is a, a product of what these programs look like and how hard it is to apply and how specific they are and how many hoops you make the companies jump through. And then also what criteria you put on there, because you may be wrong about what you want to be promoting and what you don't want to be promoting. So I think You know, this is like basic kind of right of center economic thinking. But the idea that you would let companies decide what are good ideas is usually the smart thing to do. And, you know, if we talk about what you mentioned at the beginning there, Matea, the contracts for difference, this is an idea that's been kind of floating around. It's a pretty new idea. It would be individual contracts that the federal government would sign with large companies that are doing big projects. So if you have some carbon capture project, And that is only viable if there's a price on carbon at, say, $150 per ton, then you can't make that investment if you're pretty sure Pierre Polyev is going to come in and trash the carbon tax. So you're going to wait on the sidelines. So when the government signs these deals, they say, look, if the carbon tax doesn't go up to $175 per ton by whatever it is, 2030, we will pay you this big penalty because we didn't own up to our side of the deal. So what it does is it creates stability in a few of these sectors for the companies. To me, that is a smart idea because as much as anyone hates the carbon tax, whether you hate it or whether you love it, you have to admit that it's created this terrible investment environment because you have the government kind of holding on for dear life to this policy amid Pierre Polyev saying it's a terrible idea and that he'll get rid of it as soon as he gets in. So if you're a company that kind of relies on a certain price for carbon to do your investment you can't commit to that because you assume the opposition will take power at some point. So what those contracts do is create an environment for these companies to invest in whatever makes sense to them. The trouble with it is, is that Pierre Polyev is still going to make some hay out of those contracts and the idea that you're locking in the carbon tax. So I, I think those two things are worth weighing up, though. There's a good way and a bad way to do this. Well, I want to turn it over, yes, to Murad, because I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts about this. It is useful to think of this as a giant bet, 
you know, you ask, do we know which sections of this will work and which won't? And certainly there are more and less proven technologies. So Stuart's talking about contracts for difference. There's different ways to do contracts for difference, right? What the Canadian federal government is doing is these kinds of contracts are kind of bespoke. The UK government has done a thing with clean power where it basically set a contract for difference, like a standard contract. And it said, anybody can take this contract. Like we have so many to give, come and take one. And we've set the terms. We don't have to negotiate them. Those work slightly differently. So we don't know which instruments will work. We don't know which industries will work. Frankly, we don't know whether the whole thing will work. It's a giant bet that if we spend enough money, we can, one, attract investment, and two, decarbonize the economy. It's a bet that we're not alone in making. The U.S. obviously has prompted us to make this bet. The EU is making this bet. Germany on its own is making this bet. A lot of people are making this bet kind of reluctantly, being pulled into this by the United States. And it's interesting to hear the government insist both say, you know, we need to respond to the IRA, otherwise we'll lose investment, but also insist that we were here first. In fact, the U.S. finally woke up to the thing we've always wanted to do, which is decarbonize the economy. Hooray for them. Thanks for coming in. And also, by the way, we need to spend billions of dollars behind them. And I think the dynamics of this get really interesting because, you know, Stuart was talking about what the conservatives are going to do. There will be projects that fail out of this, right? The government has set out $80 billion over a decade in tax incentives. Some company is going to get those tax incentives and go bust. Some company is going to get a large loan out of the federal Canada Growth Fund, which is another thing that they're setting up, and go bust. Or there will be some scandal about how much executives are being paid. Something is going to happen. And frankly, some person in the media is going to report it, and it's going to be a scandal. That is baked in. The question becomes, how soon does that happen? How big is it? And is it big enough to derail the whole thing? Because, again, we're talking about a decade's worth of tax credits. And the last thing I just want to mention is there is an interesting shift from the government, at least rhetorically. So the language in the budget said picking winners doesn't work. In fact, it's never worked. And so what we're going to do instead is lay out these tax credits. And if you are eligible for the tax credit, you get the tax credit. And it speeds up the payout process. And that's a really interesting thing to hear the federal government say, because it's not how they've been running the government for the last eight years. This is essentially a situation where Canada is tagging along with a type of policy that is being introduced elsewhere. It's pretty clear, I think, that this is like piggybacking off of initiatives that were introduced in the U.S. Is it really wise to create policy simply to compete with the Americans? Like, has our hand actually been forced and we have to just kind of go along with what the Americans are doing and respond to the Inflation Reduction Act and respond to these other initiatives that are being uh, implemented in the U.S.? Or, like, was there some sort of other alternative whereby we actually do the thing that the government is saying that they're doing and chart a different course that isn't just sort of responsive? Yeah, I think you hit on probably the most um, salient point here, which is that there is sometimes a case to be made for these kinds of subsidies luring companies to various sectors. And there is kind of a separate issue here of where the government thinks this is an important thing to encourage for other reasons, not just economic reasons. But if you talk to any sort of pro-market economist, they would say the worst time to offer these subsidies is when everybody else is doing it, because then it becomes a race to the bottom. Because you, and the best example of this is every time Amazon does like the bachelor thing where they say, we want to open a new headquarters. Everybody lure us to your town. And then everyone offers subsidies. And by the end, you know, you get 500 jobs that pay 20 bucks an hour and you've paid billions of dollars for it. So I would be cautious about this. There is a lot of elements of the green economy. And as Murad, I think 
correctly said, we don't know what a lot of them are right now because probably some of this technology isn't here yet, or we just don't know what's going to take off. I mean, competing technologies, competing companies on the various elements of the green economy, you know, unexpected things happen. Another thing that I want to circle back to was this notion of the pushback from the conservatives about this major pillar. What is like the underlying reason for this concern? What is their alternative? Like what would they rather be doing instead, do you think? I think the best example of this that I think is worth looking to is what happened in Alberta, where Jason Kenney argued against the carbon tax, took it to court. But they also had an industrial emitters tax that was fine. Alberta had had that for years and they tweaked it to satisfy the feds. And I wonder, it doesn't totally work the the way the industrial carbon tax does, but with these contracts, they don't lock the carbon tax in specifically to you and me in the sort of like, you know, gas prices we pay. They do on the other end of the thing, where if you're taxing companies, they pass that down to their customers. So I wonder if maybe there's a chance here for Polyab to do something similar where he can allow a carbon tax to affect big corporations who he's been taking shots at lately, which is an interesting thing for a conservative to do, and then try to take some of that away from, you know, fuel levies away from the sort of ordinary people that he talks about in his speeches. I spent quite a lot of time and my colleagues, even more so, spent quite a lot of time talking to clean tech companies. And one of the major things they will say is, A big problem is finding someone to buy the damn stuff in Canada, because if you are a clean technology company and you are trying to sell your emissions abatement or a carbon capture technology, it really helps if you've got someone in Canada who will build your first plant with that technology. It really helps if you have a reference customer. Whether or not this stuff works, I think there's general agreement getting carbon out of the air and putting less in is a good thing. And in order to develop the technology, the conservatives believe we can make an export, thereby creating jobs in Canada. These companies need to have Canadian customers. And what a lot of these schemes that the liberals are proposing are doing is incentivizing Canadian companies to adopt those technologies. Now, Stuart makes a good point. The conservatives are talking uh, in, in sort of more hostile terms about big business. But it does seem like these sort of conservative approach to this is shaped by oil and gas thinking and not clean tech thinking. If you go and talk to these clean tech companies, a system that sets them up with reference customers is a good system. I'm sure that they will have lots to say in the coming years about how these programs are structured. There will be inefficiencies. The programs may not be structured in a way that do the matching well enough, you know, help them find those clients. All that needs to be set up. But the idea of a system that creates incentives for big polluters in Canada to adopt emissions abatement technology or clean technology, that's a win for the clean technology sector. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when hopefully spring will have actually sprung and maybe we'll have to get David Mosscrop back on the podcast for another update about the seasons. He's our seasons expert. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me at Matea Roach on Twitter. Stuart, where can people find you? You can find me at thehub.ca, Twitter, Stuart X Thompson, and sometimes at the Boston Pizza in Canada. Nick, where can people find you? 
People can find me at politico.com slash Ottawa Playbook. It is a newsletter and I write it. And Murad, where can people find you? Uh, you can find my articles at thelogic.co, my stupid jokes on Twitter at M-U-R-A-D-H-E-M. The Canada Goose, or Branta canadensis, has reached Northern Europe as well as the Kamchatka Peninsula in eastern Russia and eastern China through natural migration. Canada geese have also been introduced artificially into Europe. Samuel de Champlain sent several pairs of geese to King Louis XIII as a gift in the 1600s. And in that same century, geese were first introduced in Great Britain as part of King James II's waterfowl collection. Why you would ever give someone geese as a gift is a mystery to me, but that's how geese ended up in Europe, apparently. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard, with additional production by Noor Azria and Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. 